We are in the middle of a sermon series called God Can't, and we've had three weeks of kind of exploring this idea of the things that God cannot do and why that might be good news for those of us that have gone through times of pain, suffering, and evil. I think it goes something like this. A lot of people who suffer or are or, or hurt, we have this idea that God is the all God. God can do anything. God can do anything God wants, and so God necessarily gets what God wants. If you could do anything you would want, why wouldn't you do it, right? So we have this idea that God does everything that God wants to do, so everything that happens must be what God wants to happen. The problem with that is when we go through times of evil, when we go through times of suffering and pain, we ask ourselves, is this what God wants? Why does God hate me so much? Why would God want me to hurt so badly? And so we've been exploring this idea that maybe this idea of the all God isn't the God that we get in Scripture. It's not the picture of God in Jesus. Instead, we get this idea of the all God from Greek philosophy and other philosophies. But maybe that's the problem. And so we've been over the last several weeks, going back to Scripture and saying, okay, who is this particular God? What is Jesus saying to us about this God, and how does that influence our understanding of evil and suffering in this world? We started out with, let me just kind of recap the weeks. The first week, we understand that there are some things that love can't do. Love can't control. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love does not insist on its own way. Love can't control. And you understand this. We get this at a fundamental level, that if you love something, love someone, it means you don't control them. You don't force them to do things that you want them to do. That's not love. Love can't control, and God is love. That's where we start out. So God can't control things. God can't control you, right? God wants to be in a relationship with you, but God's not going to control you. Otherwise, you're not an object of love. Rather, you'd just be kind of like a wind-up toy that God makes do whatever God wants you to do. That's not our God. That's not who the God of Scripture is. God is love, and God can't control and so a lot of people have used that freedom to do wrong and suffering in this world. So week two, we said, well, who is God? What does Jesus reveal God to be? God is the one who is always with us, a God who fully knows us and suffers with us. This is our God. Jesus comes, and he doesn't just open the eyes of the blind. He doesn't just uh, lift people off of the ground. He also looks them at the, in their eyes, and he restores them relationally. He says, I see you and I understand you. Jesus goes as far as to weep with those who are weeping, as if Jesus knows that, that those who suffer, what they deeply need most is someone who understands suffering, to just be with them. Jesus reveals that this is who our God is fundamentally. Our God is somebody who understands us and knows us in our hardest and darkest moments and is 
with us, a God who is fully empathetic to us. We know that this is what we truly need, and and we start to discover that a God who fully knows us and suffers with us is more powerful than any other kind of God that we can imagine. This is our God. What a good God He is. Then last week we talked about, well, what does God actually do? He must do more than just sit and cry with us, right? I mean, I appreciate that, but I'd like to see some stuff get done as well. Yeah, God gets stuff done as well because God is love. Because God is love, God is always motivating all things to do the right thing, to to act in loving ways. That's what we talked about last week. God is always influencing everything toward miraculous ends. This is who our God is. God is asking each of us to play our part, to do the most loving thing in any given moment. And when all the players respond to God perfectly, when you and I respond to God's movement perfectly, doing what God wants us to do in that exact moment, we can see miraculous things happening. We talk about it like the stars aligning for something miraculous to happen. I prefer to think of it as when we all align with God's love, miraculous things can happen. And so there's an impetus on us to exercise our faith, to stay close to God, to be listening at all times because you and I could be called upon to be a part of somebody else's miracle. So stay close to God in all things. That's where we are. That's where we've been in the sermon series. And then today, I want to ask this question. Well, it seems to me that sometimes good comes out of suffering. So does God cause suffering? Does God want us to suffer from time to time? Are there times when God makes us suffer? The Bible seems to kind of indicate this a little bit. Let me tell a little story, kind of open up my life to you a little bit more, uh, hear a little bit more of my backstory. I have two half-brothers from my dad's previous marriage. Uh, my dad was married when he was like 19 years old, um, early, early on. And he and his first wife, um, they travel, he enlisted into the military, into the army early. And uh, he and his first wife had two sons, and they lived in Germany for a time period um, when he was still in the army. And those boys were about, I think, six and eight when uh, my dad and his first wife decided to divorce. Now, his first wife said, I'm out of here. You can have the kids. Goodbye. And she came back to the United States, left my dad with his two sons in Germany uh, while my dad was still serving in the military. About a year later, it came time for my dad to do a tour of duty in the South Pacific. And so my dad didn't know what to do with his two sons. And so he said to their school teachers, a married couple and a single guy, would you watch my boys while I am out? while I'm out in Asia. Um, and uh, the school teacher said yes. About a year later, the school teacher said to my dad, uh, may we adopt your sons? Can we adopt your sons? And my dad, thinking it was the right thing to do and the best thing for them, he said yes. The, those school teachers took those boys back to America, um, and they split the boys up. 
and one, uh, one, the couple uh, took one boy and they lived in Maine, and then the single guy took the other boy and lived in California. Those two boys grew up hating their parents. Those two boys grew up with a lot, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. My dad met my mom a little bit after that, and I don't know why my mom thought this, but my mom had always thought that she was going to have one uh, child of her own with my dad and uh, then raise the other two boys. I don't know why my mom thought that, that there was an option for raising those other two boys, but she always thought that that was going to be the case. After they got married and realized that she was not going to have those two boys and raise them up, um, she decided to have a second child, me. (laughs) Now, when I was um, about a week before I was leaving for college, my mom sat me down because she wanted to tell me some things, and my relationship with my mom had been pretty well eroded by this point, Um, but she wanted to sit me down and tell me a few things, and she called me Richard then, and she said, Richard, I need to tell you a few things. You were never meant to be born. Now, parents, can we talk about this? <laughs> parents, it's easy, okay? Even if your kid was a surprise, even if you weren't planning on having your kid, maybe, you know, tell them that they were a miracle, uh, you know, an unexpected blessing, something beautiful like that. Whatever you do, do not tell your kids you weren't meant to be born, especially as they're about to embark on adult life in the world. My mom told me, uh, Richard, you weren't meant to be born. I had always planned on raising your half-brothers and then having one child of my own. But because your brothers suffered, because they have lived an awful, awful life, because they've had a painful life, abandoned by their parents, grew up in pain and suffering, you are now alive. They suffered so that you could live. It's a lot of pressure on a young man. It's a way of coping with suffering. I think my mom is wrong. I think my mom is wrong. She believes that God caused their suffering so that I could be alive. It's a way of coping with suffering that I think sometimes people bring up from time to time when they can't understand why an evil has happened, why pain has happened. They say there must be some reason God did this. There must be some good that has to come out of this. God is causing the suffering so that Rick could be alive, so that something good can happen. I reject that notion. Sometimes we, it comes out in a way of like, everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. <laughs> there are things that are random in this world. There are things in this world that do not happen for a good reason. There is genuine evil. There is genuine suffering. And God is not happy about it. Now, God never lets an evil situation stay put. Our God is a God who always works inside of evil to bring about good. We call it redemption. Some people think that God causes suffering so that good can happen. 
There's a story in the Bible, and we read a little bit of it just a moment ago, where people kind of get this notion that God um, caused pain and suffering for some sort of good end, that God created evil, did it. It, we've been talking about uh, the story of Joseph and his 11 brothers. We talked about it this last fall. We kind of dove deep into the story. You know a little bit of it. You, know, you probably know the story. Uh, Joseph was the youngest of his brothers, uh, flaunted how much his dad loved him more than the others. So the brothers beat him up, threw him in a ditch, sold him to slavery. Later on, he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He ends up in prison. He works his way up the ranks by interpreting dreams, and he is in a position where he can lead Pharaoh and uh, where he can lead Pharaoh in saving the population from a famine. A few years later, his brothers come in needing food, and they ask for forgiveness. And Joseph welcomes his brothers into his house, says, I'm going to take care of you from now on. Now, at one point, their father dies, and the brothers get real nervous. They get real nervous. They say, what if Joseph now rejects us because our dad is dead? Let's, let's tell Joseph that there was a part of the will that he didn't know about, Right? That's what they essentially do. Let's tell Joseph that right before our dad died, he told us something to tell him. I can't believe that even after all this, they concoct a lie. And they go to Joseph and they say, Joseph, our dad, before he died, told us, uh, told us to tell you to forgive us. So uh, you should forgive us for the sake of dad. Joseph gives an incredibly gracious answer. He says, look, don't be afraid. Am I God? Am I God? And then he says, what you intended for evil, God, hmm, there's a Hebrew word here that doesn't quite make sense, that we don't quite know what it means. God, hmm, it for good. Now, your English translators they have to make a choice. If we come across a word that we don't know, we can't just leave it blank. <laughs> we have to come up with a word. The New International Version, the NIV Bible, comes up with a word. They decide, we're going to make it reflective. We're going to reflect the, the brother's intentions, even though the, the word is not the same word. They say, you intended harm, but God intended it for good. That's what the NIV says. That second intended is not intended. It's a word that we don't know, but the NIV translators, they said, you know what, we have to, we have to say something. So they decided to reflect it with the brother's intentions. Do you understand what this makes it sound like? It makes it sound like you intended to do me harm, but God intended everything for you to do for good. So God used you God made you hurt me, beat me up, sell me into slavery so that I could be in this position. God used Potiphar's wife to accuse me so that I would go to jail. God used this entire situation for good. So don't worry about it. There wasn't actually any evil. That's not quite <laughs> what we should take from this story, but a lot of people have 
created that understanding, that God somehow intended for this evil to happen. Now, when we get our Bibles, it's gone through many hands, many translators and interpreters, and every translation is an interpretation. We have to understand that when we come to the Bible, so we have to come to the Bible with a little bit of humility. And what we can also do is compare translations. The United Methodist Church, we've kind of endorsed two translations, the New Revised Standard Version and the Common English Bible, which is the the version that I use primarily in worship. The Common English Bible says this in the same spot, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people just as He's doing today. What an incredible difference. Totally different. You planned something bad, but God produced good out of it. This, to me, is closer to the heart of God. That God sees a bad situation, mourns over it, says, this is not what I want, this is never what I intended, but, but I'm not going to give up. I think we can work with this. I think we can keep moving forward. I think we can keep doing good. God never stops working. God always is squeezing good from every bad situation. This is what redemption is. God sees an evil situation, says, I didn't cause this. I didn't want this. I never wanted this to happen. But God says, I won't leave it alone either. What good can we squeeze from this? What what growth can happen from this harm? Can we bring about good from evil? This is what it is to redeem. This is what it is to have redemption, for God to see an evil situation and to make it right. This is what Jesus does. When he, uh, he's traveling one day, and he comes across a blind man, the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this blind man or uh, this blind man's parents? They're still in this understanding that God punishes in this way, that God causes evil. And so if you're feeling evil, if you're feeling some sort of suffering, then God is paying you back for something. And Jesus says, neither. That's the wrong kind of thinking. Instead, we have to do something. We have to produce good even from an evil situation. And so Jesus comes into his situation, and he works, and he heals this blind man. This is our God, not a God who's caused harm or has caused suffering, but a God who never quits to redeem suffering to bring about good. Pastor, what about discipline? What about discipline? The Bible talks about God disciplining us. The Bible talks about uh, God, the vineyard, or the gardener, pruning the vines. What about discipline? Does God not discipline? Yeah, I think God disciplines. I don't think God just wants life to just be perfectly rosy and, you know, absolutely pain-free. I think that there are some things that are hard in life that God calls us to. I think God does discipline us, but I want to change the way we think about God's discipline. I don't think of God's discipline 
as, you know, um, an angry authoritarian who sees us when we do something wrong and then gives us the old backhand. I don't think that that's who our God is. Let's try a different analogy or a different illustration on for size. I don't know if you're going to like this one much better, though. Uh, You know, it's, oh, we just finished January. Uh, So, have you ever started up a new gym membership? (laughs) Often when you get a new gym membership, you get a free session with somebody that's called a personal trainer. And you will go to this personal trainer session, and this person will pretend like they are your friend. (laughs) They'll say, hey, what are your goals? Where do you want to be in a year from now? Where do you want to be in six months from now? And you have a conversation, and you feel like you're just having a friendly chat with somebody. And then they say, okay, let's get up. Let's go to the weights. Let's go to the machine. Here, run as fast as you can for for 30 seconds. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, I don't think you're my friend at all. And the personal trainer will say, if you want these goals, then this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do next. I think God's discipline is more like that personal trainer. It says, here's our goals for the world. It means we're going to have to do hard things, but I am here with you, cheering you on. Let's put a little bit more weight on. Let's let's run a little bit faster. Let's hold this position a little bit longer. It's going to feel hard, but I promise you, you can do it. It's not going to be easy, but I am with you, and I'll make sure that you are safe, and we will achieve these goals. Life isn't going to always be easy. Life isn't always going to be easy. God has goals for our world. God has goals for our church. God has goals for your family. God has goals for your life, and it means that God is going to ask you to do things that are hard. God is going to ask you to give. God is going to ask you to interrupt your calendar, to be there for somebody in need. God is going to ask you to have a hard conversation with a family member. God is going to ask you to do difficult things, but it's not punishment. It's not punishment. It's training. It's discipline to do the right thing. God's discipline is never destructive. It is always productive. It is always productive. When God asks you to do a hard thing, it's to make something right in this world. Now, it's our job to discern these two things. What is evil suffering that grieves God, that is not good for us, that is not right, but God can still bring about some good from. And what is discipline? What is training? What is the hard thing that God is asking you to do to produce something good? They are two very different things, and we should not ascribe God's love to genuine suffering or evil. But we understand God's love is always going to bring something good out of that, work to bring something good out of it. And then there are times when God says, okay, do this hard thing. How do we discern the difference? We have to exercise our faith, right? We have to practice being in line with God. We have to study. We have to think. We have to pray. We have to take moments for 
God, to be in line with God so that we can know and discern the difference between these two things. Why? So that we can be equipped to say a word of peace, of hope, and comfort when we go through suffering, when our neighbors, our friends, our families go through suffering, people will be looking to you for a word, for something good to say about God. And if we're not ready, we might say something even more harmful than good. God does discipline. God does ask us to do hard things, but it is for our good. It is for your good. It is always productive. God is like a coach and a trainer says, do these things, I will be with you, and we will get better together. There is hardship in this world. There is suffering. God does not produce evil. God always works through evil to redeem it. And God also asks us to do hard things to make things right in this world. Hold these two things separate and discern them together. I like to end the sermon with a couple of takeaways. What do we do with this? How do we What do we walk away with this morning? I want to say the first thing is, think about a time when suffering has produced maturity in your life. Understand that as God redeeming evil, not causing it. God does not hate you. God does not want bad things for you. God did not cause you harm. But God will produce something good out of it. Can you see it? Can you see what God is doing and what God is making out of you? The second one is God has set goals for us. Macro goals and micro goals, right? God has set goals for the world to make things right, to end evil and suffering. So what has God called us to do to be a part of that? God has set micro goals for you. What what are you called to do in this life right now with your family, with who you are? And then what do you have to do to work out your faith? What are those things that maybe you don't want to do? Like, I don't know, come to church on Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) Or what are those things that God is asking you to flex and work out so that these goals are met? Focus on these things. Focus on these things. I don't think my half-brothers suffered because God wanted them to suffer. I don't, think my God, I don't think God broke up my dad's first marriage. I don't think God ordained for those boys to hurt the way they've hurt. I think my dad tried his best. I think he thought he knew what was good and what might be the best for them, and, and things went south, and things went very bad, very bad. I don't think that they had to suffer so that I could have a life that I could live, so I disagree with that. But I do think that God never once abandoned my family, never once said to my dad, you screwed up in such a major way, you're on your own. Instead, I think God continued to work in the Shul family and said, I won't let you go. And I will work to squeeze good out of a terrible situation. And I feel God working with me and speaking with me to work and do my very best to tell the story of my family, to tell the story of suffering so that we can say to one another, never again, never again, not in this family, not in the next generation or the generations to come. And the shuls will not be known for a tragic mistake 
and suffering, but the shuls will be known as a people whom God never gave up on, and God squeezed good out of this family, and God used this family to make things right in this world. That's who our God is, the God who redeems an evil situation and makes things right and never gives up. There is no better image of God's redemption than the cross. There is no better image. A tool that was used to shame criminals and execute and show the authority and power of Rome, God used it to show the whole world that God loves you, forgives you, holds none of your sin or evil against you, and shows you that you are entirely forgiven and set free from everything that holds you back. God took a symbol of evil and redeemed it, made it a symbol of love and hope for all people to show us that there is no evil that God cannot overcome. There is no evil that God cannot redeem and make right in this world. And so when we come forward to receive communion, we celebrate that we believe in a God who does not cause evil or suffering, but we believe in a God who goes into evil and suffering, into those situations to bring about the most good. This is our God. That's our story. That's my story.